Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of What the Politics. And today we are having a guest, a professor who is a Civil War historian. And we're going to talk about presidential powers and then also talk about comparisons between when the nation was the most divided during our Civil War and today. So I'm going to go ahead and let our guest introduce himself. So my name is James Fink, and I am a history professor at the University of Arts or Science and Arts of Oklahoma. Um, a small town here in Chickasha, small school of about 800 to 1,000 students normally. So um, I'm a Virginian by, by, by birth, lived most of my life in Virginia until grad school, where my family moved out of, out of state, and we've lived in Arkansas and Texas, and now we're in Oklahoma. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, got a wife and three kids. And I've read your bio, and you've lived in quite a few places, so... And we usually, we also ask a personality question for for okay. our guests. Um, what has been your favorite city to live in? Favorite city? Wow. Um, probably, I loved Fayetteville, Arkansas. Oh wow! Um, oh, they're all so great. But yeah, I did my I did my PhD in Fayetteville. We just I loved it there. It's a uh, probably because I'm from Fairfax, Virginia. So I'm right outside of Washington D.C. You know the old the suburbs, very very crowded, and so Fayetteville sort of had anything you'd want, but yet still sort of had a small town feel, and that's really one of the reasons why I think we really liked it because I don't want to move back to a city. Mm, yeah. I love living in it. I live in a very small town right now, and everything's five minutes away, and that's kind of nice. But we're also lacking things where I have to drive to either Norman, Oklahoma, or Oklahoma City for certain things. Where in Fayetteville, everything you'd ever want or needed was there. But still, again, kind of had that small town feel. Definitely a college town, which which made it fun. Walmart's there. That's the headquarters of of, of Walmart. <laughs> so they kind of bring in all the important things too, air, airports and cultural activities and everything. So it really was a, it was a fun place to live. All right, very cool. So the first question we want to get into is just talking about presidential powers. You know, can you kind of give us a, a you know definition example of of what that is for someone who doesn't know? Well, uh, the best place to go to is the Constitution, obviously. And, and I guess I'm sort of a strict interpretationist a lot of the time. But if we look at the Constitution, it, it basically lists presidential powers. So it says the president is commander-in-chief of the Army and the Navy. He says that the president can grant reprieves and pardons, um, except for impeachment. Um, the president, um, with advice from the Senate, is important, can make treaties. And he appoints ambassadors um, and judges, receives ambassadors, um, and then take care of laws to be um, faithfully executed and shall commission all the officers of the United States. So that's sort of the list of his powers. The only other major power that comes in the Constitution is Article 1. They also give him the veto power over Congress. So sort of if you're just going to go by the Constitution, that's it. That's all the powers he's allowed. He basically enforces the laws and is commander in chief. Mm-hmm. And so I want to talk um, about executive actions. Is that a presidential yes. power? And how, is that defined in the Constitution? Where, where can we see that? 
nowhere. <laughs> it is not in the Constitution. Um, it's sort of an applied power. People look at Article 2 and they look at areas like, you know, faithfully execute, you know, the laws and things, and they, and they basically have applied that these things refer to the president as well. Um, I mean, to executive orders. Now, again, some people are going to disagree with me on this, obviously, but there's nowhere in the Constitution that actually spells out that the president has the right of executive executive actions. And in fact, I would argue that Article One of the Constitution, where it says only the legislature can make laws, it's the very first thing the Constitution says. Um, I would argue says that the president does not have that authority, which oftentimes that's what they're doing with executive orders is, is making law. Mm-hmm. How how did we get to the point where presidents now it's <laughs> it's normal for them to sign executive yes. actions? So we've always had them. So Washington even ordered executive orders. Um, his very first one was basically he told all of his department heads that they needed to report to him. Um, so clearly that's an executive order that I would say fits within the bounds that, that he can do. He's telling his people to give him a re- report, and so there is a lot of times the presidents need to make certain things, and as long as they are within their bounds, and in fact, the Supreme Court has got involved in this. In, in 1952, in a course, court case called Youngstown Sheet uh, versus Sawyer, um, they basically, the court said the presidents can do executive orders as long as they stay within their bounds. So they argue that he can, if it has to do with the military, the president can make executive orders in the military, because that's under his bounds. And if it falls within um, it says, you know, if anything that falls under his authority in the Second Amendment, or if the Congress gives him authority to do certain things, then the president actually has the right. Um, so really kind of the history of it is it's not clear cut, but the 19th century, um, the federal government does very little. Um, really, for the first hundred years of our existence, the federal government on purposely doesn't do a lot. Um, and your average citizen, your average American really deals with their state government, and with their local governments. Um, federal government isn't really taxing them. Uh, there's no income tax to, to the 20th century. They really don't have a lot of role. You really never felt the federal government. Um, Congress, when we did feel the federal government, you felt Congress. Congress was in charge of tariffs. Congress was in charge of immigration, some of these big issues that we deal with today. Um, so if you did have to deal with the federal government, it was Congress. Presidents were not very strong. Every now and then a president would sort of step up. You're a Lincoln, a Jackson, uh, would sort of fight Congress. But when those presidents, you know, either stepped down or were in Lincoln's case assassinated, Congress really sort of reasserted their authority and took over. So we really don't start seeing a change until what we call the progressive presidents, led by Teddy Roosevelt was the first one, who really kind of took the attitude that presidents need to be bigger and more powerful. And so that's where you'll start seeing executive orders happen. And really, it's just my opinion, um, as presidents started to take more and more executive orders and take, took over more and more, Congress sort of let them. Um, and I sometimes just, I'm of the opinion a lot of times today that Congress doesn't mind if presidents do executive orders sometimes because that takes the burden off them. They don't have to make important decisions and they get elected easier that way. And they sort of allowed presidents to just run rampant. So it sort of starts in the progressive age. And then we'll see Roosevelt, um, Franklin Roosevelt, quite a lot in the Depression, World War II. And then really it's in the Cold War where we felt like we you know, had to fight the communists and make decisions quicker and quicker that we really see presidents start to take off. And it's just sort of become tradition. And as long as no one sort of fights back, in 1952, with that court case that I mentioned, 
um, the Supreme Court did get involved and told Truman that he wasn't allowed to take over the steel industry. But we don't really see the, the courts getting involved that often in too many of these executive orders. And it's sort of just become tradition. Congress allows them to do it. Things that Congress used to be in charge of, they've now just allowed the president to do it. And it just seems like everyone's happy with the system. <laughs> I'm not. I don't like executive orders. But so kind of the way it happened. Mm-hmm. It's, it seems like as if there's a pattern, these executive orders became more commonplace in times of great disaster. Um, yes. And I think we're definitely seeing that right now because of COVID-19. It's, so looking looking a little bit towards the future and, and looking at the past and those patterns, does disaster grant more leniency for presidents it's, to kind of yeah. take those exact, uh, executive actions? It's it's difficult because you kind of look and you can you kind of can break down and like I said there's there's things with the military with the, clearly he has the ability to do the president can make executive order with the military um, and so whether you like what he does or not if it's the military he can and then there's areas where he's enforcing the law so this is sort of a third area can a president in time of emergency issue executive order because you know you you could make the argument that Congress can't act quick enough. Again, that's not in the Constitution. It doesn't say in times of emergency, but that's when we've seen it. We see the Emancipation Proclamation with Lincoln was a war emergency act that he passes, and that was an executive order. Um, And so, but at the same time, the one that the Supreme Court shot down, that's when the president tried taking over the steel industry, that was during the Korean War. And they were going to go on strike, and he argued during a war, you can't allow the steel industry to go on strike. So he was going to basically take over the steel industry, and the Supreme Court said, sorry, you can't do that um, without Congress. So that's a case where that was an emergency, and the court still said no. Usually, that's where you're right. You see, because you can make the argument with COVID, you know, we need some executive orders. And more people will see it as legitimate and aren't going to fight as much because, yes, there is an emergency, and we need to act quickly. Um, Is it constitutional? That's up to the courts and, and scholars more than me. I, I get your know, judges and things, but um, you, it's not it's not in the Constitution officially. It's sort of the third one that everyone sort of sometimes turns their back on and says, okay, it's an emergency. One ruling which most people want to see, though, is if it's an emergency executive order, it needs to end when the emergency is over. Does that make sense? So you wouldn't be able to pass something, let's say, on immigration and say it's because of an emergency and make that policy that's going to last when COVID's over, hopefully over soon. Um, so that would be something that's not an emergency order. That's making legislation and not just making an emergency executive order because it doesn't end. Sure. And so when it comes to executive orders, you know, FDR signed 30 within his first month of being sworn into office. Um, The only really comparable other presidents with their executive orders in that first month was, you know, Trump signed 12, Obama signed 16, Truman signed 13, and then Biden now has signed, uh, signed 28 within that first month. Mike, is there yeah. any? I think his number is up to thirty-two. Yeah, right, right, yeah, right now, yeah. So but is, historically, does the number of executive orders give any insight into the success of that presidential administration to that president to that president um, at all, or is there you know absolutely no correlation between the two? That's a good question, um, and probably <laughs> one that I would have to spend a few minutes looking into because um, I had never thought of 
the presidents, I mean, if you look down the list of presidents that have you know, a lot of executive orders, like I said, you see your, your Roosevelt's and different things, which obviously most people consider fairly successful presidents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we get our modern ones, you know, Reagan, you know, depending, you know, people see him as very successful. Um, you know, but like I said, then you hit Trump has a lot, Obama has a lot. So I, I honestly, I don't know because I think you can see it both ways. Okay. Um, you can look, I'm looking at numbers here for one year. I have it in front of me. So I'm looking at, you know, Jimmy Carter had 320 and nothing against President Carter, but I don't think most people put him high on the list of, right. of great presidents, but yet he had quite a bit of executive orders. Um, um, and so I don't know if there's a correlation. Um, and I think that's taken me a lot more time to, it's a great question, but um, to really sit and look and, and to see if that, yeah, if there's a correlation between because a lot of times, and again, sometimes you see it if they're having a lot, like like Roosevelt. I mean, he was in a, he did have an emergency. He was, you know, Great Depression, World War II, um, which then goes to the question I always ask students: Are they great presidents because they're great presidents, or are they great presidents because they had major issues? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, was was Roosevelt in some ways lucky? Is not the right word, but when it comes to his his, his you know, the history, and we talk about his legacy, it's because he solved these wars. Or maybe Franklin Pierce would have been an amazing president if he had a war and would have gotten us through it and would have came out the other side looking great. But we didn't have a major conflict. And maybe that's because he was such a great president. We didn't have a major conflict. So um, I, I think sometimes if you're looking at that, just because they have a lot of executive orders, I'm not sure that would mean that, that they're considered great presidents. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about executive orders and how the president's powers are checked. So I'm hearing Supreme Court. Are there other ways that these orders can be um, can be checked or, or denied? Yeah, I mean, officially, really, the, because the Constitution doesn't lay this out. You know, there's no, they, you know, the Congress can't veto the president when he makes law. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the court is, is the major way to do this. I would argue sort of an unofficial way would be Congress. Um, and I'm, I'm maybe down on Congress sometimes, but I think Congress just needs to step up and, again, start, you know, for one, maybe passing legislation on, on their own. But secondly, standing up to the president and saying this isn't how this is supposed to be done. There's not an official check there. They can't, again, they can't veto them, but I, you don't even see a lot of pushback. What you see is pushback from the other party, mm-hmm. you know, but not from Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone says that, uh, you know, basically everyone sees executive orders are wrong when they come from the other side. Mm-hmm. Our side, our, our executive orders are, are legitimate, yours are not. So you see parties, you know, the Republicans are fighting against, um, you know, Biden's executive orders now where Democrats were fighting against Trump's executive orders. But it was never Congress acting as units and saying, this is our job. And, you know, get out of this, stop doing this. We are, we are going to pass legislation on tariffs because that's always been our job. We are going to pass legislation on Im- immigration because that's been our job. But instead, they're sitting back and they allow the president to do this. And they don't tend to challenge presidents as, as Congress. They challenge it as individual parties. So, but yeah, officially, there's no real check outside of the courts. So if there's no real checks and we start seeing presidents making certain executive actions or a lot of executive actions, when can we start knowing if there are red flags, if, if there is something that seems to be more authoritarian than democratic? I mean, honestly, for me, and again, a lot of people disagree with me, I already see the red flags. Okay. To me, the moment presidents pass legislature 
instead of getting their job, the executive order should be upholding laws that are already passed. Mm-hmm. When you start making legislature, making rules, to me, that's a red flag right there. Uh, and so, again, the problem is, is when my party does it, it's okay. When your party does it, that's why we're not seeing it really reined in because it's become political. Instead of the whole country saying, or the whole Congress saying, you aren't allowed to do that, that's against the Constitution, until we see that, which we're not, because the parties support what I would see as red flags, um, because president is making laws today, and not just this president, but the last several presidents, they're making legislation. Mm-hmm. And that's the job of Congress and Congress only. So yeah, where does it get really, really bad? I don't know, because again, I'm already seeing presidents basically. When I heard, I mean, I remember one time, this is a few years ago, this during the Obama presidency, and where he said, We're, I'm going to ask Congress to make legislation for immigration reform. And if they don't, and if they can't come up with something, I will just do it by executive order. To me, that's a red flag, because there's nowhere in the Constitution. And what a lot of the argument for this is, and, and as I talk to other people, they'll say, well, the president has to do this because Congress won't. And I understand that. But again, if you're going off the Constitution, it doesn't say Congress makes laws unless they don't have enough votes or refuses to do it, and then the president's allowed to. So when the president is using executive order for something simply because he can't get enough votes for his legislation, that's a red flag to me. That goes exactly against everything to me that the Constitution stands for. The Constitution is set up with a, a three, you know, three branches, and the point of the three branches are actually to limit the power of the federal government. Um, you know, the idea that I was, one of the sayings I like to is the only thing worse than gridlock is no gridlock in Congress. And so, yeah, a president may really, really want a bill passed. He can't get the numbers. Congress will drag their feet. And so, if they just pass an executive order because Congress won't do it, that's a red flag to me. That's borderline, you know, that's crossing a line because that's not their job. Do you think that these executive actions that recent presidents are taking are increasing the polarization that we see in the United States? It doesn't, it doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, when the other side sees a president, you know, by themselves, a stroke of a pin can do anything they want. You know, that's where you're going to get conspiracy theories and different things. And I, I think a great example we just saw is the Paris peace climate. And again, not arguing for or against it. Obama signed it without any authority. Trump comes in and does away with it without any authority. Biden comes in, puts it back without any, you know, no oversight, no authority. The next Republican president could just take us away from from it again. So if Congress would approve of this, if they were the ones, as it says in the Constitution, that approved all treaties, then presidents just can't come in here and take away something that, you know, they'd have to get it done by Congress, which again moves slowly and slowly on purpose. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't think it helps with the division in the country when one person who's you know, half the country doesn't like, is able to do whatever they want without going through the proper channels. Sure. I want to talk about um, Biden's, the 100-day goal he has for schools reopening. Um, You know, he's trying to reopen the majority of them. Obviously, the details on that are a little muddled uh, right now of of (laughs) how they want to go about that. But at the end of this, at the end of the day, this decision, you know, it really isn't up to President Biden or the administration, it really comes down to these teachers unions and local officials. So what, how, how yeah. do we, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think what influence would he have? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I think, and, and I, I think he's going about it the right way from what I can tell, but I think what he needs to do is, is, is be a leader. Mm. 
Um, you know, this is a goal. You know, set a goal. Again, I agree with you. I don't think he has the power. I think it's a state-by-state issue. Right. Uh, I don't believe he has the power to tell schools they have to open. But that doesn't mean that he can't set a, a, a national goal mm-hmm. and say, let's work towards this. What can, what can I do to help? What, you know, I got, you know, we got all this money and different things. What is it that I can do? Let me lead. Let me encourage. Those are all great things for a president to do, to try to work towards, because that's a great goal. Let's get schools open. Um, as long as he's short of, in, you know, ordering it, because then again, I think that could be a state by state issue. Uh, mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that he can't have a he can't have a role, and he seems to be doing that. It's just more, this is a goal that that we're setting, and I think that's positive. And um, one of the things that you are in your job and what you do is a Civil War historian. And I am. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about because there there are some. If you look online, if you look on the internet, a lot of people are talking about the divisions in the United States and how there's sure. extremists are saying that there's a civil war coming. Um, what is your view on the division we're seeing in our country right now and comparing it to back then? It's, it's a great question. And whenever I give talks, it's one of the first questions I always get from the audience. So the last several years, my answer is it's changed. The last several years, my answer has always been nowhere close. And I would argue we're not even to 1968 yet, which was, again, a very divisive year in our history. The problem now is I think we have passed 1968, um, especially with, you know, more of the violence that we're now seeing from, you know, from both sides, you know. And so, yeah, I got a feeling we have passed 68. And, and we're getting close to 1960, um, 1860, I'm sorry, when it, when it, when it comes to voting. Um, and just the way that we're acting, I, I always see one major difference. We are completely, again, it's about as divided as we've seen in a long time. The only thing about civil war that I think would be difficult and be very different than the actual civil war is if you break down, you know, the map in 1860, overwhelmingly, you were going to see one section of the country with one point of view and another section of the country with another point of view. Um, Southerners overwhelmingly sort of thought the same thing. Northerners overwhelmingly sort of thought the same thing. And so when we had a war, it was a sectional war, right? The North and the South. Today, even though if you look at a map, blue and red states, if you break down any of those maps, um, except for my state of Oklahoma, if you break down any of the other maps, they're red and blue. Uh, There's no states out there that are all one color. We are much more divided um, amongst our, within our towns and our, in our states and our cities than we were in the 1860s and i think it made it a lot easier to break away and to form armies and things because your whole state basically all thought the same thing so your legislature everyone in your legislatures were all on the same side uh, especially in the south you know they were all democrats um, and so it's easy for all the democratic legislatures to get together vote for secession their states could break away and all their people supported them and they could form armies where we again would be within our towns would be divided um, and so if we did have some kind of civil war, the fear it would be much more of a um, kind of like what the border states might have been in the civil war, much more of a free for all guerrilla warfare uh, between, you know, people against, ta- you know, they're people that they know more than what the civil war is. A lot of people like to call the civil war brother versus brother. And I don't like that line because I actually think it was brother with brother. You literally fought next to your brother and your dad and your best friend. <laughs> except for some of those border state regions like Kentucky or, or Arkansas, where they really did divide. And that's what would, in those areas broke out into guerrilla warfare more than anything, where they're you know, attacking their, their, their old neighbors because they didn't like them. 
So that's the scary part is if we are, and we are, it's almost, we're just about to that same point where we're awfully divided, but I don't know if we break into war per se once, you know, we've, we, we, I think we've learned a little bit from, from that previous war, but two, I think it'd be a lot harder to ever organize into official sort of armies. If we were to ever really, really fight, I would, I just think we're going to see violence like we see now. And maybe, you know, in small groups, like the, the group that attacked the Capitol or, we might start seeing that locally. Um, the group that tried to go after the mayor in, 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 in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was the mayor, right? Something like that. Um, I think we're the governor. See, yeah. Yeah. The governor. Yeah. That's yeah. There is no mayor of Michigan. I should know that. <laughs> the governor of Michigan. Um, so yeah, I think that's what, if we do see a war, which, you know, hopefully we won't and things will calm down again. We've seen times in history where it ebbs and flows, right? There's times where there's a lot more tension than there's times that there hasn't been, and except for once in this country, we've always gotten through it. Um, like I said, the 60s, we were very divided. Um, we got close to, you know, there was violence in the streets, but we never broke into a civil war. I think we're still more like that. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can, things get better, COVID gets better. I think that'll help and we can all get back to our lives. And maybe, you know, and I get if the politicians help, I think they don't help at all with the divide. But if we, you know, maybe we can come back together and things will calm down. Because that's what, that's what history shows. Things were really bad in the 60s going into the 70s. The 80s and the 90s, we weren't, you know, yeah, we were somewhat divided, but not the same anger that we were in the 60s. So with everything in history, that's why we need to study history. Because things ebb, ebb and flow. Sometimes we get along better than other times. Sure. And, and sticking with that point, as a country, how do we move forward? How do we learn to avoid a repeat of those similar situations? Where do we go from here to bridge that divide a little bit more? Uh, it's a it's a difficult one. Loaded question. <laughs> yeah, whoever can figure that out, you know, would make a great president someday, right? Or, or leader. What's, what's most interesting about if so if we're just going to look at the Civil War. And we're going to look at the decade that leads up to the Civil War, so the 1850s. And it's one of the most sort of ruckus decades that we've ever had in this country. What is most interesting about that decade that I, I have found is up to the 50s, what we had been able to do as a country is avoid talking about difficult subjects. Slavery was the subject in America coming into the 1850s, but we didn't talk about slavery as a country. We our, we talked about it as individuals, but there was actually was rules in Congress called the gag rule that basically forbid slavery to be discussed in Congress because everybody knew if we talk about this in Congress, the parties are going to break down and we'll stop voting as you know Whigs and Democrats and we're going to start voting as Northerners and Southerners. And so as long as we keep slavery off the table, we can stick with our parties and, and we can you know fight over banks and tariffs. And Southern Whigs and Northern Whigs can get along, and Southern Democrats and Northern Democrats can unite. We'll fight against banks. And then you bring slavery into the question, and the parties break down, and it becomes a Northern versus Southern. So we avoided it. And that's why if you study history, you see these big compromises, like the 1820 Compromise that said every state above the line is free and every state below the line is slave. They did that so that as new states came into the Union, they didn't have to discuss slavery. They already were established whether they be free or slave. So as long as we kept that off, we what I always say is several times from the beginning of our country, the founding fathers started it, the next generation did it, is they just punted, right? They had this issue of slavery. What do we do? If we talk about it, if we debate it, we're going to fight, so let's punt it. Let's move it on down the road. The next generation kind of caught it, 
And, you know, they didn't want to deal with it. They punted. And then we come to the 1850s. And for the first time, we get a group of people that are moving in that are abolitionists that actually believe slavery is evil and we need to end it. So what they stopped doing is comp- compromising. They refuse to compromise. So then that brings up the whole question, is that a good or a bad thing? You know, what do we want our politicians to do? Compromise. Um, and yet, when they stopped compromising, but what were they compromising over with slavery? So you could say that, hey, these were great politicians because they finally sort of stood up to slavery and refused to compromise. But yet, in so doing, we divided the nation worse than it's ever been, and we ultimately killed 700,000 people because we had a group of people who refused to compromise. So take that example and then somehow put it on us today, and it's the same thing. Do we want to compromise? Do we not want? Compromise is a fascinating thing. We all want our politicians to compromise, but they really, when we use that word today, we really mean you should do what I want you to do, right? Why aren't you compromising with, with me? Um, and we don't want our, we want our politicians to compromise unless it's an issue that we're really strong on. And then we refuse, then we tell our politicians, right, we know don't compromise on this because that's really important. So if we look at the 1850s and we look at today, that's kind of the problem, I think, in a lot of ways we're dealing with. We want all these really divisive issues, and especially social, kind of cultural issues. Um, do we compromise on these issues? Do we not compromise on these issues? And that's where I see some of the, the, the comparisons to the 1850s is um, we've kind of, we're not compromising anymore. Whether that's good or bad is kind of up to the individual person, because again, do you want to compromise? Let's just throw a really, you know, one out there that's really controversial. Do we compromise on abortion? You know, do we compromise on, you know, certain rights, you know, different things? And, and if we don't, then that divides us. But if we do, then maybe we're compromising on issues that we shouldn't. So it's a, the answers are, if you want to look at history, that's what happened in history. But I don't know how we fix it today in some ways, because I think, you know, we've refused to compromise. We've polarized. And, you know, our, our politicians, instead of leading us to compromise and are leading us to, you know, be kind to one another, they're, they're, they're the worst in, in the group at attacking each other and name calling. And, um, you know, there's not a lot of positives coming out of government oftentimes. So, um, you know, and, you know, revenge and all these things that are happening in the politics today. So. Right. And and this is going to be our, our last question for you, but okay. keeping on that same point, um, one of the one of the parts that I was kind of getting and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on the on what I'm getting from what you just said, but it almost seems like leading up to the Civil War, our government leaders were almost afraid to talk about touchy or hard subjects. Um, do you think that our Congress and our government leaders have gotten better at doing that, better at really standing up to the problem and, 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 and not shying away from the difficult topics? Yes. Uh, on a whole, like I said, yeah, because before that, because slavery was just never discussed, not discussed in, officially in Congress. And so, yeah, we, we discuss it all. I also think, though, that's to jump back all the way to the beginning of this conversation. I think it's a lot easier for Congress to sit back and let the president make decisions. Um, because when you're dealing with controversial subjects and you vote yes or no, now you're on the record. It's a lot easier to have the president do it and you don't have to make those decisions. So, but we are talking about them. And so again, that sometimes reminds me of those, of that decade right before the civil war, where we did start having to deal with some of those issues. And, but that also divided us as a country more, which is kind of what's happening now. So, um, we're talking about them, but it's what's dividing us. 
Right. And I think that's a, you know, a really great point to end on. So we want to thank you so much for joining us for um, this conversation today and taking time out of your day. We really appreciate it. Not a problem. All right, everyone, that's going to wrap up this episode of What the Politics. We release new episodes every Tuesday, so be sure to stay tuned for those. You can check about it at WNCT.com under the Features tab for the WNCT Podcast Network, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, guys, we'll see you next week. 